we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion. And uh, on this occasion, I have a special guest who I consider to be somewhat of an expert when it comes to sex and religion. And he's not too shabby on news and politics as well. Cam Riley, welcome aboard. I consider myself a bit of an expert on sex too, Trevor. Thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've boasted about it often enough that, uh, yeah, I think we all know what to get up to and congratulations you got, on your efforts. <laughs> you've got to advertise. As, uh, you know, my marketing background uh, taught me that, Trev. Very good. So if you're new to this podcast, um, Every second week, we have a little panel discussion where a group of us sit around and talk about the news and events, uh, particularly in relation to Australia and then the wider world. And then every second week, I've decided to do something special, either a book review or an interview or something else. And this is that special week. And Cam Riley is the guest this week. And Cam, amongst his many accomplishments, is uh, he's an author and he wrote a book called The uh, Psychopath Epidemic, Why the World is So Fucked Up and What You Can Do About It. By the way, language warning, normally we don't drop the F-bomb too often in this podcast, but with Cam on board, uh, keep, keep the kids away until uh, you've had a, re- a listen to it. And uh, so, Cam, the psychopathic... Uh, bring, your, the psychopath. bring your seat backs to their fully upright position <laughs> and uh, make sure your seat belts are fully fastened. That's it. If you're Tray watching... tables us- up. If you're watching us live, then make some comments and hopefully what you comments you make will appear in the chat room and they'll start to appear on the screen and we might answer some questions or whatever that come along. So feel free to make some comments there and that will impress Cam with the technology on this podcast. So have a go at that. So Cam, the psychopath epidemic, what's the premise of the book? What's what's the elevator pitch? What's it about? Mm. I know what you're doing here, Trev. You figure I throw Cameron a softball question. I can sit back, uh, put my feet up for the next 45 minutes while he uh, just rattles off. But I'll I'll take the bait and run with it nonetheless. So, the, yeah, the psychopath epidemic, uh, the premise is that the vast majority of the problems facing the world today caused by are the result of psychopaths in position of power and wealth in our major institutions, uh, businesses, religions, politics, the media, the military, the police, education, the list goes on. But they're probably the, the big five or six that obviously direct a large percentage of the world's affairs. And I came to this conclusion after many, many years of thinking about really, really, if you drill down to it, what's the real problem with what's going on today? And I remember I was I was writing another book and was thinking about all of these all of these stories that I've collected over the years for my various podcasts about people in positions of authority in all of those sorts of institutions just doing really stupid, bad, heinous, and thinking, why? Like, why? Like, I know humans do that, but why, when you're in a position of authority and power and trust, 
would you allow yourself? Well, why, if you're Bill Clinton, would you be getting blowjobs in the Oval Office? Like, really, why? I mean, sure, you want to get blowjobs, but there's plenty of other places as the president you could probably do that outside of the actual Oval Office itself. Like that, the, the risk that you're taking on is insane. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, after um, reading a number of uh, books on uh, psychopaths, coincidentally, and thinking about bosses that I'd had and, and organizations that I'd worked in, large organizations and small organizations, organizations like Microsoft, where I worked for six or seven years, I came to the realization that when you look at the the characteristics of people who rank highly on the psychopath test, people who exhibit the classic psychopath behaviors, and then you look at the people that are, are running these sorts of organizations, there's a very high overlap if you Venn diagram them. And then I started to think about, well, <clears throat> does it make sense that people who had these sorts of characteristics could rise to positions of power in management and these sorts of organizations. And I realized, yes, it does. In fact, that it, you, that's what you would expect. You would expect a psychopath to be able to rise through the ranks because famously they're able to uh, think one thing and say another. They're the smiling assassins. They're the people who learn to exhibit the sorts of behaviors and say the sorts of things that they think we, people want to hear. Shall we just give a quick and dirty definition for a psychopath and a sociopath, perhaps? Yeah, well, it's an interesting. Like, if you read the, oh. the medical literature, if you read the DSM-5, the, the, the medical establishment's diagnosis of disorders, there is, there's really no distinction between sociopaths and psychopaths. They all get lumped together into in, you know, antisocial personality disorder. Generally, though, when you read sort of the more mainstream literature, there's a little bit of divisiveness around it. But I, I came to the general conclusion that most psychiatrists who work in this space and uh, clinical psychologists tend to think that the difference is people are born a psychopath and they're, or you're made a sociopath. If you experience extreme trauma, as a young child, around the ages of four, five, six, the, the classic uh, <laughs> fictional example I always use is Dexter in the Dexter right. TV series. Saw his mother brutally murdered and then sat in her blood for, I think, hours before he was rescued. It, it, it fucks with your, your empathy center, your ability to feel empathy and express empathy towards others, among other things. Mm -hmm. uh, or you're born with that. And if you go back through history, you know, there's plenty of evidence. It's nothing that would stand up for a clinical psychologist. There's plenty of evidence that psychopaths have always been with us in one shape or form. It's just mm -hmm. that in years gone by, we called them kings and uh, generals and popes and, uh, you know, various other titles, uh, rail barons, railway barons. Yeah, still, so, still yeah. just trying to get a, a quick and dirty definition. Would you, would you say something like a psychopath would be somebody with a strong desire for power and and a disregard for the rights of others, like as the sort of willingness to just walk over and ignore the rights of others seems to be the key part of being a psychopath? Is that, hmm. is that really a key part of it? Yeah, but I want to shout out to the people in the chat room, Tony and Dire Straits, that were in Sydney for the screening of my film, uh, Martin yes. and the Side. Good on you, guys. Thank you. 
Appreciate that. You made it just before COVID. That was the last thing ever screened in any cinema in Australia before. Yes, the, the key characteristics, they have an immense, an innate sense of superiority. They innately believe they are better, smarter, and deserve more than the people around them. And over time, they, they quite often are justified in thinking that because they do get away with more than the people around them get away with, mostly because the people around them, A, don't try and pull the sort of shit that a psychopath will pull because we have uh, a combination of empathy and guilt, which they don't have. And also because psychopaths just have the innate skills to bullshit their way through lots of situations where most of us would, would get caught out. So they have an innate sense of superiority. They have a very high appetite for risk. They're willing to take enormous risks, predominantly because they are convinced they will succeed because they believe they are superior. They will yep. get away with stuff. And again, the ones that you see as senior leaders of organizations typically have been successful. They have taken a lot of risks. They have gotten away with it. There, you know, there are psychopaths with a very high IQ who and, and are quite charming who get away with all this stuff. And then there are the ones that don't. They burn out very early on. But mm. the, the ones that get away with it tend to have a very high IQ. Just, just, with have, our, just with our society at the moment, Cam, there seems to be very little accountability, you know, at, at least in politics and in business, where companies are failing and yet the CEOs move on and get a nice job at some other um, company at a similar or better pay scale or level, and the same with our politicians. They're, they're, they're right, perhaps, for downplaying the risk because if you're looking at the way our society is running at the moment, people seem to just get away with stuff that, I don't know, I, I don't feel like it was as easy to get away with previously. So maybe well, that risk isn't that, there. Yeah, well, one of the things I explore in the book is what are the, what are the symptoms of a psychopathic culture in an organisation or in a country? What what are the what are the symptoms when there's been enough psychopathy for a long enough and the conditions are right that you can bring an entire population along with you or you can you can erect the necessary foundations in sort of a, a business culture with business expectations that it becomes normalized psychopathic behaviors become normalized and in fact expected it's like when you know, if you say that uh, so-and-so politician is corrupt and people will say, well, that's all politicians are corrupt, you know, particularly if it's a member of their own party. If it's a member of a party they don't like and they're like, oh, yeah, they're corrupt. If you, particularly if you talk to Americans. You're talking to an American Democrat, the Republicans are all evil. If you point out corruption in the Democrats, they're like, well, every all politicians are corrupt. Come on, at least they're not as bad as that guy, right? It's the normalisation of these sorts of psychopathic behaviours that we've seen over decades and decades of capitalist democracies, which I think in particular make it easier for psychopaths to rise. But before I get distracted by that, the other key thing and the thing that all of the, the medical literature will point to is a lack of empathy, or very, very low empathy, not necessarily zero empathy, but very, very low empathy. Because most of us, if we hurt somebody or a group of people, if we have to if we have to, you know, screw over somebody at work so we get the promotion and they don't, or if we have to fire a thousand people on Christmas Eve so we get a bonus and they'll get laid off. For most of us, we could do that necessarily. Oh, John, die straight says, John. Hi, John. 
Good on you, John. John discovered your podcast through me, so you're welcome. And then he stopped <laughs> paying for my podcast, so, you know, he's on the outs. And then, John, yeah, I'm kidding, 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 John. Love you long time, John. Where was I going with that? Oh, yes, if, you, if most of us can do bad things, we can cheat on our spouse, we can lie about our taxes, we can fire people, we can do all this sorts of stuff, but we feel bad about it. And we, you know, we, we lose sleep, we lose weight, we get, we have, you know, stress, we, we, we get sick sometimes. When a psychopath does those things, they have the best night's sleep of their life because <laughs> they feel like they've got hashtag tiger blood and they're a hashtag winner mm. because mm. they're willing to do what the losers aren't willing to do to get ahead and to get more power. And that's the key thing, I think, that differentiates the 99% of us from the one to four percent that rank highly on the the psychopath test according to most clinical psychologists and psychiatrists who work in this field mm. now one of Was your theories a long Neil, enough answer to your one of your theories uh, about organizations becoming psychopathic you mentioned business religious political but you talk about organizational darwinianism where where and you can obviously expand on this, Cam, as I'm sure you will. But it talks about the culture is is maintained because if you're not going to fit in with that sort of psychopathic culture, you won't even apply for the job, you won't progress through the organisation, and you'll probably leave. So just want to describe how organisations find it really hard to change because the people are, are sort of weeded out or filtered to match up the organisation. Yeah, this is something that Chomsky and Herman pointed out in Manufacturing Consent back in the uh, early 90s, I think, which was based on the work of a Brisbane boy. But they call it the five filters, the way that organisations filter out troublemakers, basically. But yeah, look, if organisations, if you take a, whether it's religious or corporate or political, whatever, obviously the first filter is the, the application process. They, they will tell you in the, in the job ad what it is or the seek ad, what they're looking for. And so they're filtering out people who will read that and go, well, that's obviously not me. Mm. Then there's another, there's another filter, which is the interview process, where obviously they're trying to weed out the people that they don't think are the right cultural fit for the organization and if it's a psychopathic culture or a broken culture they're obviously looking for people that will will fit within that culture and won't make waves but people will sneak through that you know deliberately or accidentally they they will or sometimes they'll have certain hiring goals for diversity or something and people will get through but then once you're inside of the organization if you see behaviors going on inside of the organization and I saw this at Microsoft that you're not comfortable with ethically or morally. And first of all, you need to know what your ethical and moral framework is. And most of us don't because we've never sat down and gone through that exercise. And I sort of walk people through how maybe to do that in the book. But most of us don't uh, get taught that in life. But if you do feel awkward about something and you, you don't want to go along with a decision or make a decision, you kind of know that if you don't, somebody else will, and they will get the promotion, they will get the bonus, and their job will be secure. So that quite often people will just go along to get along, as they say. Or if you see somebody else doing something, you have to make this decision, do I speak out about it or not? 
if you speak out about it inside of the organization, the dominant culture will usually shut you down in a number of ways, either in a very harsh way or in a soft and gentle way, but generally shut you down if you're creating waves. Then you have to make the decision, well, do I, you know, if you see this enough and you just decide I can't be part of this, do you stick around and try and make change? Do you make waves inside of the organisation, which, you know, there's there's a lot of risk to your, both your, your broader reputation in your industry if you do that, plus obviously your ability to keep the job or, or get promoted inside of the organisation. Or if you just leave, if you quit, then obviously the culture just keeps ticking along. They just, you know, fill someone, fill that gap with someone else. If you become a whistleblower, if you if you become a Snowden and you try and Snowden the organization or you know the guy who blew blew the whistle on the ATO or you know we have a number of organ number of examples in this country in recent years, you know a, a, the organization will come after you and, and try and destroy mm. your reputation, hit you with massive lawsuits that as a, an individual punter, you've got very little ability to defend yourself against. They will try and crush and destroy you. And one of the things I point out in the book, I think you can tell a lot about how healthy the culture of an organization is by the way they deal with whistleblowers and the way they deal with customers, generally speaking. Businesses that treat customers like shit probably have a fairly psychopathic culture. Mm-hmm. Organizations that genuinely care about their customers and go out of their way to make their customers' experiences positive, probably a sign of a healthy culture. And it's the same with the way they treat treat whistleblowers. Organizations Mm. with a healthy culture, if somebody goes, leaves the organization and goes goes into the meeting and says, hey, listen, I work there and they've got some fundamental problems, ethical problems, moral problems, etc., a healthy organization, you would like to think would go, wow, that I'm really glad that you told us about that. We're going to bring in an independent external investigations team to, to go and look at this. We're going to do an inquiry. We would love you to be part of that because, you know, the, the, the ethics of our organization is really important to us. And, we, you know, as well as the perception of our organization, let's let's deal with this in a wholesome manner to make sure that we get a good outcome versus we're going to crush you and destroy you and turn you into sand mm. beneath our boots, which is what yeah. most organizations tend to do. Of yeah. so, a, so a psychopathic organization is quite adept at, at, the, at the leadership that percolates to the top. We've gone through this filtering process to be psychopathically in tune with the nature of the organization. So, Cam, question for you. The former Soviet Union, was that a psychopathic organization, you think? <clears throat> Yeah, I think, uh, you, well, you know that mm. I've spent hundreds of hours talking about Stalin on my Cold War show. I know. And, and so, yes. so my question is, if it was a psychopathic organisation and Gorbachev comes along and mm. basically says, looks around and goes, well, don't like the look and smell of this, I think we call it a day and we move on to mm. a different project, have you got an explanation for that? Which, in fact, he didn't do. Gorbachev never intended to shut down the Soviet Union. That was never right. his intention, never his plan. But anyway, yeah, well, look, let me, your first your first question, yes, I think particularly under Stalin, I think Stalin had a lot of problems he had to deal with inside of the USSR when he took over. They were facing some massive existential threats. But yes, he does seem to have exhibited classic psychopathic behaviours mm. in his attempts to 
direct the ship in the direction that he thought it needed to go in in order to survive. Hmm. After him, the guys that came after him, probably to lesser extents than Stalin, I think, they were yep. trying to manage the thing they inherited. Of course, when Gorbachev came along and decided to open up, so Glasnost and Perestroika were definitely things that Gorbachev wanted to do. He didn't want to shut down the Soviet Union or get rid of communism or anything like that. He just he wanted to make it better. He wanted to improve what they were doing, a little bit like Dong Xiaoping did when Mao died and he, he took over but, uh, China. Yeah. Did, he also yeah. sort of pulled back on the sort of authoritarian rule of neighbouring countries, though. Is that is that true? Yeah. 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 And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I just yeah. here's the theory I'm leading to, is that is that – Gorbachev got to the top, but nobody actually realised that he wasn't actually like the rest of them in some ways, that he was kind of an aberration. And and they'd promoted this guy up thinking he was a psychopath like the rest of them. And once he got there, it was like, hang on a minute, that's not quite what we bargained for. He's a little bit different to what we thought. And that was... I don't, I don't, I don't think he would have got there if Stalin was no. still running the joint, but weakened down over the years. But I think mm. everyone there at the time knew that, you know, they were they were broke. As as a as a country, they were broke. As a philosophy, they had it was riddled with holes by you know the the eighties when Gorbachev gave it came in. So they were looking, they were looking for change. Probably they didn't expect him to pull a Gough Whitlam, and just you know rewrite everything overnight as he did, make some massive existential changes to the mm. to the country. Mm. So you've painted a picture where we've got, at least turning back to the West, where we've got in our political, our corporate, our religious organisations, sort of psychopathic controls in, in many cases as an explanation of why we're in a mess. And these people are not doing what the rest of the community would like them to do. And the question is, why don't the the masses, the people, rise up and revolt, Cam? What's stopping people from saying, hang on a minute, we don't like this, we don't appreciate what you're doing and we want you to stop? Why Why is there, why, why aren't we up in arms about it and mm. trying to stop it? Yeah, that's, that's the big question, right? So I think mm. there's a couple of answers to that. I think part of it is we still don't understand psychopaths. You know, I, I think that the majority of people out there today, when they think psychopath or sociopath, they think serial killer, Ted Bundy, or they think Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or something like that, dictator, mass murderer, or, a, you know, lower level mass murderer like a, a Ted Bundy. This is pre-Trump. I, I wrote the book sort of... <laughs> pre-Trump, came out late Trump, but uh, he may have changed the scales on that. But people, you know, I, in the book, I talk about the idea of garden variety psychopaths, not your, you know, it's it's it, the vast majority of psychopaths out there, the ones who do the most damage aren't the Hitlers or the, the Stalins or the Ted Bundys. It's the Cardinals and the CEOs and the prime ministers and uh, the people like that who do the vast majority of the damage. But we, we, we haven't, you know, the whole idea of psychopaths is only 70 years old. It only really, the, the, the early research was being done in the 50s in the, in the US. 
And it's really only been in the last 20 years that it's started to make its way into the mainstream lexicon that people think about it. But it still hasn't filtered down where we don't look at our, our manager or our priest or our wife or husband or our next door neighbor or the police chief and say, oh, yeah, they're, they're a psychopath. You know, we're not familiar with the psychopath checklist. We're not we're not familiar with the, the behaviors of a psychopath. So we, we, we don't we, we still are trapped in this medieval view of evil. Oh, so and so did that because Hitler, Hitler, you know, gassed the Jews because he was evil. Stalin uh, allowed for the Holomador, Holodolomor, Homolodor, one of the, the, the famine in the Ukraine because he was evil. We, we think in terms of evil or bad apples. We don't think about, and this you know, gets back to my earlier book about free will. We, we don't yet think about human behavior in terms of biochemical events happening in the brain. That every human action, every thought, every action is the result of neurochemical events, biological events happening in the brain. We, don't, we haven't yet mainstreamed, normalized, a scientific view of human behavior. We still are wrapped up in this homunculus, religious view of a soul and a spirit. And even so, even, you know, atheists, secular people who listen to the show, I guarantee you 99% of the people watching this right now listen to your podcast still believe they have free will. There's absolutely no scientific evidence for free will never has been never will be because it's scientifically improbable implausible and impossible but people still cling to it even atheists because they just haven't adopted a fully scientific view of who they are and how they work and it's yep. the same with psychopathy so we don't think in terms of psychopaths and i want us to think about psychopaths in those terms look we're always going to have them they're just a fact of life it seems we need to prepare for them. We need to manage them. And the second part of it is, you know. Actually, spend- just, just that bit where you said we're always going to have them. I think somebody I know once said. Yeah, I just accept it. I'm not outraged. It's a common thought, Ken. <laughs> You're pointing out that you are, in fact, the inventor of the Ray Harris <laughs> soundboard, which I had forgotten. I don't get enough credit for that. Thank you. You don't get enough. I don't get enough credit for inventing podcasting on your podcast. <laughs> And you don't get enough credit for inventing the Ray Harris soundboard. Indeed, I had to throw it in. I I want to get on to. (laughs) I want to get on to one of your theories. So it's always been with. No, wait, 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 wait. So the other reason we don't rise up is because we've had a hundred years of of propaganda telling us that rising up is bad. Yes. Every every revolution in the world, unless it's supported by the West is a bad revolution. The people should not rise up because rising up is uh, a thing that terrorists slash communists do. Mm. And thirdly, why we don't is because we're fat and happy, most of us in the West. we like, well, yes, okay, psychopaths are running things and climate change and bloody bloody blah and coronavirus fuck-ups and vaccine fuck-ups and all of that kind of stuff, but I've got a big house and a big TV and a couple of cars in the garage and my kids go to a good school and I go on vacation. Well, I used to before COVID. Really, who wants to rock the boat when you've got a big middle class? No one wants to rock the boat. 
Yeah. Yep. On, on this sort of area, one of your theories is that capitalism has enabled psychopaths. You said we've always had psychopaths, but there's something about capitalism that brings them more power and makes it easier for them to operate. And I think reading in your book, you mentioned that really in olden days, unless you were a prince or a high priest or somebody, there were very few people with actual power. And most people were scuffling around in the mud, planting some crops and tending to some cattle. And if you were a psychopath, there was a limit to the influence that you could have. And modern capitalism has, has sort of created a dynamic where psychopaths can flourish where they couldn't previously and they can do a lot of damage. I'm going to read a quote here. Dear listener, as I'm reading this, you have to imagine who who wrote this. And Cam, you're not allowed to answer because you know the answer. <laughs> uh, it goes on for Even a bit. before because, you read it, I know the yeah, answer. That's right. And it, and it goes on for a bit, but because I haven't a chance to say anything, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say something and you can have a, have a drink. Yeah. So private capital tends to become concentrated in few hands, partly because of competition among the capitalists and partly because technological development and the increasing division of labour encourage the formation of larger units of production at the expense of smaller ones. The result of these developments is an oligarchy of private capital, the enormous power of which cannot be effectively checked even by democratically organised political society. This is true since the members of legislative bodies are selected by political parties, largely financed or otherwise influenced by private capitalists who, for all practical purposes, separate the electorate from the legislature. The consequence is that the representatives of the people do not in fact sufficiently protect the interests of the underprivileged sections of the population. Moreover, under existing conditions, private capitalists inevitably control directly or indirectly the main sources of information, press, radio, education. It is thus extremely difficult and indeed in most cases quite impossible for the individual citizen to come to objective conclusions and to make intelligent use of his political rights. And who do you think said that? And Cam in his book gives possibilities. Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Vladimir Lenin, Noam Chomsky. I would have put Chomsky as a good one for that. Uh, Julian Assange. And uh, the answer was none of the above. It was, in fact, Albert Einstein. So there you go, dear listener. The sort of increased power of the oligarchy, their control of the political process and the difficulty for just the ordinary citizen to to make intelligent use of his political rights, summed up by Albert Einstein. Good quote to find, Cam. Yeah, if you haven't read Einstein's writings on social and uh, philosophical and political issues, it's well worth reading. He he was very articulate and very passionate about those things, but uh, people tend to forget or just don't pay attention to that aspect of Einstein. And, and and he was writing that, I think, in the 50s. You know, obviously, it's even worse now. And so to get back to the reason why I think capitalism has made it easier, you articulated it well. It's about social mobility, right? So if you go back a couple of hundred years ago, if you were born in a village somewhere, whether it was the US or, or Europe or, or wherever, and you were a psychopath, you, you were one of this one, two, three, four percent that was born a psychopath, psychopathic tendencies. Yeah, like you could maybe end up being the tyrant of your little village. Maybe if you're in Renaissance Italy, you would have ended up as a mercenary. You could have, you know, and there's some instances like Ludovico Sforza's father 
who made himself the Duke of Milan. He was a mercenary for hire to various popes and leaders of Florence, like the Medici, until he was rich enough and he could go and build a big enough mercenary army and take Milan and make himself the Duke of Milan. But that uh, didn't happen very often. You know, there, there were instances of that. But really, if you were a psychopath, you either got knifed in the back by the people in your village because you were mm. just a... I don't know if I can swear. If I can't swear freely, I, I can't articulate myself. See what you feel North- comfortable with. <laughs> okay, if you're a complete cunt, you get knifed by <laughs> you get knifed by somebody in your village eventually, right? But, or, or if you survived, you you would rise up and you'd be a, 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 a mini tyrant. Hmm. Um, but it was very difficult to become, you know, a, a baron or a king or 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 a bishop. Even you know, they had a fair amount of wealth and power. Then along comes uh, modern capitalism, particularly American-style capitalism. It doesn't matter where you're born in America or Australia or the UK or most places of the world today. It doesn't matter what little village you're born. If you're a psychopath, you can you know, get enough money to get on a bus or get on a train and go to the big smoke. And then you get to the big smoke and you work your way up. You, know, you uh, Wolf of Wall Street it. You start off in the mail room and you work your way up. You stab people in the back and you climb the ladder. Well, there are these organisations that will encourage psychotic behaviour, psychopathic behaviour. So in the village where you're sharing resources to some extent and you're sort of monitoring the commons and, and whatnot, that sort of behaviour is going to be looked down upon, whereas in in some of these sort of organizations that have been created in capital that that sort of behavior suddenly becomes valuable whereas before it wasn't that's that's it's sort of the the organizations that are there yeah Mm. psychopathic behavior in the west now is encouraged Mm. and rewarded as long as you don't go too far or get caught out Mm. and that happens you have the enrons the guys and i talk about enron i got like a whole chapter on enron in the book these guys uh, were fated by the business media, the business establishment, the banking industry, politicians in the US. Everyone loved Enron until it turned out it was a complete house of cards and it collapsed. But, you know, you look at the uh, the, the transcripts of some of the conferences uh, between the CFO of Enron and the financial journalists before they collapsed, where journalists were asking questions about their financial reporting and the CFO was just literally abusing them and calling them names on the call just as an arrogant piece of shit that he was. Like they were just super, super arrogant psychopaths. But that kind of behavior tends to be, if, if you're willing to make the hard decision for the sake of profit, then organizations of all colors will snatch you up. And it's left and right. It's not just Republicans. It's not just the Liberal Party. It's the Labor Party. You know, the plenty of people who worked with Kevin Rudd after he left office the first time came out and said he's a psychopath, complete mm-hmm. psychopath. It's all about him, right? It's it's not a left or right thing because psychopaths don't have an ideology. They their only ideology is me, mm-hmm. and they will look for the gaps, look for the holes where they think they can get in, where they have a foot in the door, and they will get in, they will work their way up through. And, you know, classic Donald Trump supposedly was a Democrat 25 years ago. Then he just switched, became a Republican because he doesn't have an ideology outside of me, right? Why, yeah. Where can I 
you know, get more wealth and power. That's the only thing that psychopaths care about. So they're, they're, they're left, right, priests, CEOs, they come in all flavors, all colors, mm. but they do tend to be white men. I mean, mm. At the end of the day, the majority of them appear to be white men. Mm-hmm. Cam, I want to move on to white men. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I want to move on to concepts around messaging and propaganda. So this is an important part of the whole idea, isn't it? So just reading a couple of excerpts from your book here, as they have to do it, the elite, the psychopaths, know that if we wanted to, the public could start a revolution and cripple the economic system that keeps them on top at any time. To prevent that, we need to be kept ignorant of the relevant facts overworked, poor, heavily in debt, and distracted. So, and all of that takes systematic brainwashing. And another part here you say, actually you're quoting Alex Carey in this part, an Australian social psychologist. Is he the guy to do with Noam Chomsky? Is that the same guy? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so Kerry wrote a book and then died very young. He wrote this book in the uh, 80s, about 86 on this, and then he died and Chomsky and Herman were friends of his and they picked up his work and fleshed it out into manufacturing consent. And they 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 give him credit in the uh, foreword of the book as being the progenitor of these ideas. He's from Brisbane. Yeah, there you go. So a couple of quotes from this Alex Carey. The 20th century has been characterised by three developments of great political importance. The growth of democracy, the growth of corporate power, and the growth of corporate propaganda as a means of protecting corporate power against democracy. I like that. And then this other one, corporate propaganda has two main objectives, to identify the free enterprise system in popular consciousness with every cherished value and to identify interventionist governments and strong unions, the only agencies capable of checking the complete domination of society by the corporations, of identifying them with tyranny, oppression and even subversion. Cam, would you like to wax on about propaganda and how that's working in our society for a good five minutes while I have a drink? Thanks. Yeah, no, only five? Yeah, well, you know, Chomsky's got a great saying where he says, when most people think, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but when most people think of propaganda, they think of, you know, uh, uh, third world dictator style propaganda with the picture of the the Fuhrer or, or the, the dictator up on the wall. And, you know, it's, it's very overt. It's very heavy handed. Whereas propaganda in the West is much more sophisticated. And Chomsky actually, I think, coined the phrase for a proper gender. So it doesn't tell you necessarily what to think, but it creates a small window, you know, what we now call the Overton window in some ways, about what's acceptable to think about, right? So Mm. if you read, you know, the mainstream media on many issues, you'll see that there's a very limited set of parameters for what's acceptable discourse. And anything outside of that is either scorned or ignored or just given very little time, very little coverage. So, you know, you know, if you talk about... Uh, Actually, let's can talk I, about- I'll just interrupt about this Overton window. So, because there's a bit here in your book, this is analysis from Media Matters. So cable news channels used variations of the label far left or extreme in discussions about Democrats, progressives and their policy ideas over six times more often than they used variations of the label far right or extreme while talking about their conservative counterparts. So over a four-week period, 
Yes. Over a four-week period, CNN, MSNBC and Fox News discussed extremism on the left or right a total of 547 times, which was 86% of the instances. Frame the American political left as extreme. So that's part of that sort of propaganda where when talking about the left, it was the extreme left in 86% of cases and very rarely was it the extreme right, even though if you look at American policy and politics compared to the rest of the world, they're way over on the right. And the extreme, uh, yeah. their, their right is right of Genghis Khan, and their left is still <laughs> on the right of Genghis Khan, isn't it? So Bernie, yeah. Bernie Sanders is called the extreme left over there. Here he'd be in the Liberal Party. You know, yes. he's, he's like so, so, so mainstream for, you know, most of us. You know, he just wants healthcare. Um, hmm. So, yeah, look, there, there is a limited, like the, the other example I was going to use is that communism. When we're talking about, you know, our socioeconomic system here in Australia and the mainstream media and, you know, what's right and what's wrong, there's never any discussion of, of, of socialism or communism in the mainstream media. It just isn't allowed to be a topic of discussion. It just never comes up. Well, maybe we should think, no, you can't even can't even have an intelligent conversation about it. It's just verboten. You're not allowed to go there. So, yeah, the, the, the propaganda has been very, very heavy. And, you know, in my Cold War podcast series, we've gone back and looked at, in the United States, what happened in the 30s during, you know, when FDR came in. So Roosevelt came in, obviously the New Deal, even though he was a blue blood aristocrat, he realised that uh, there needed to be some fairly fundamental changes to the way that the US economy worked. There needed to be a welfare system. He comes in a couple of years into the Great Depression. In fact, he said to the Wall Street bankers several times, listen, I'm your best friend because if I don't do this, the guys with the pitchforks and the torches are going to do this like they did in Moscow, right? So I'm your best, I'm your first, last and best line of defense against the Great Unwashed because communism was becoming increasingly popular in the US at the time as it was right around the world during the 30s. But the the business leaders were dead against any sort of changes happening. No government regulation, no allowances for unions, no wealth uh, sharing, all that kind of stuff. And so they figured out uh, eventually, it took them a couple of decades, it wasn't until the 50s that they really got good at this, they started aligning themselves with evangelical pastors. And their selling point was, listen, if America goes communist, if the people get what they want and it becomes a communist country, communists don't like religion. So religion goes. So if it becomes communist, you're gone, right? Yeah. Even though before, you know, before that in, in Roosevelt's time, and actually Roosevelt himself was a member of a Christian church that was pro-socialist. It was a socialist religious organization that was arguing for more welfare and distribution of the wealth and, you know, you know, curbing uh, the power of businesses and that kind of things. Anyway, so they started aligning themselves with the priests and the priests that got on board with this, not all priests did initially, but the priests that got on board got a shit ton of money from business mm. leaders in the US. They could use that money to build massive churches with you know, big organs and big choirs and big car parks and all of the business elite, all of the bosses. First guy who did it was a guy in Los Angeles. 
all of the elite of Los Angeles went to this guy's church. Now their employees were like, well, the boss is going to that church, so I should go to that church. So all of the the church attendants left all these little churches that didn't get on board with the pro-capitalist program and went to the big capitalist churches. So they, they reinforced in the minds of Americans that America means Christianity, Christianity means America, you know, Jesus, you know, his last dying wish was to create America and capitalism is the last thing he said on the cross, didn't make it to the Bible, but it was really, you know, when, you know, I bless America. And, and, and wealth, so they, be, wealth became associated with godliness. So mm. God was favoring you if you were wealthy. It was a sign. Prosperity doctrine, yeah, all that yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. And, and if you're not doing well, well, God's got a plan for you. You know, that's okay. You know, there's a plan for you, which or, you know, goes right back to St. Paul, actually. Or, or perhaps you hadn't been godly enough and there must have been something you've been doing. Yes. Exactly. Wrong. And yeah. the Mormons are a big part of this too. You know, the Mormons, are, you know, their whole shtick is – we're the richest, best church in America because God loves us the most, right? We're the most American religion because God loves us the most. Well, what would you know about Mormons? Mar I've been married to two ex-Mormons in my life. I know it well. So anyway, yeah, so the propaganda aligning a certain kind of uh, worldview has been very heavily invested in in the United States. And because the United States after World War II took over global culture, particularly in the West, it's trickled down into all of our countries. Now, in Australia, you know, Menzies tried to ban the Communist Party. I mean, we had just as much problem in this country with outlawing thought. You weren't allowed to be a communist in this country. He had two cracks at outlawing it. The Supreme Court threw it out both times, or whatever we call it here. The High Court threw it out both times. But it eventually got sort of wound down. But he, you know, he had, he, he spent decades trying to get rid of any sign of communism in this country, of course. Well, well there's, there's a reincarnation of that McCarthyism with the current China, you know, anti-China propaganda is just Well, it started with, it started with Russian Ga Russiagate yes. in the US, you know, Putin, you know, Trump was Putin's bitch and... All of, you know, you know, I did many, many shows on that on the bullshit filter over the years that Trump was in power. Like this incredible media storm about, you know, Russiagate backed up by nothing, nada, zip. Mm. They had nothing. And yet even, even the Mueller report eventually came out and said, I can find no evidence of collusion. But try mm. telling that to Democrats today. Like mm. 18 months later, after the Mueller report came out, they still believe that mm. Trump colluded with Putin to win the 2016 election. There's just no getting through because there was so much propaganda about mm. that from the mainstream media and the Democrats over there. And now, yes, now all of a sudden it's pivoted to China. China's the great evil. China's going to come and eat your babies China's. Uh, well, you know. well, Cam, I saw a statistic which was about your. They they surveyed countries about their fear of whether they would be invaded by China, and Australia's fear of being invaded by China was higher than Taiwan. Our our fear of China yeah. was higher than Taiwan's fear of China, not yes. our fear of being yes. invaded by Taiwan. Yes. Yeah, it's fear of being invaded by by China. By the yes. way, yeah. Technically speaking, Taiwan is part of China. Yes. I just want to say that. Oh, my. Yes. <laughs> yes. Mao Zedong wanted me to just point out that uh, yes. he never gifted 
Taiwan to the Kuomintang. They stole it, and he yes. just had other things to do at the time, but he's coming for it. The ghost of Mao is coming for it. Noted. Thank you, Cam. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's irrational because we've we've mm. just had yeah Formosa. Thank you, Restream. I do mean Formosa. Yeah. Yeah. It's original land. Yeah, look, it's it, you know we we've just been under this barrage of of anti Chinese media coverage in the last couple of years. It's astounding. And if you've studied McCarthyism and you've studied the Red Scare, like I've been doing for the last few years for the Cold War show, it's just completely obvious what's going on. It's it's just a replay of that in the most blatant form and people just fall for it again as they always do because we're kept busy and poor and broke who has time out apart from us jobless unemployed podcasters podcasters, (laughs) yeah Yeah. who don't have anything else to do than than read books you know and embarrassingly as my listeners know i get all of my knowledge from books It, it you know we no one else gets the luxury to do that. They're too busy working real jobs to put food on the table and a big house and a big TV and a couple of vacations a year and a couple of nice cars in the driveway, right? Yeah. On One of the podcasters generally, I know you're the exception, but most of us don't have those things either. That's <laughs> right. Don't mention the pizza oven. One of the sort of key parts in that, Cam, is are these think tanks, particularly when it comes to China and defence issues. And when you're looking at if somebody comes out and and beats up what a threat China is to our sovereignty and and our trade routes, you know, our trade routes with China, ironically, <laughs> invariably these people are part of some think tank. They they who you know that it doesn't matter if it's ABC or Channel Seven or Murdoch Press or whatever. They'll trot out these experts who will be you know with some think tank and you people are under the impression that these think tanks are neutral entities that they're actually sitting there thinking and mm. they're all of course just funded by typically the defense force contractors and of course they're going to come out with these lines so there's just not enough recognition of of the insidious role of these think tanks in a lot of this stuff because they get well, reported a, in the in the media that you'd kind of like to trust, like the ABC or or groups yeah. like that. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter uh, or two in the book about lobby groups, front groups, experts. It's bad here. It's worse in the US. You know, you will see all of the media channels will trot out their former, you know, their military experts that are former Pentagon or CIA or if it's local domestic issues, FBI. People, they're on, you know, they're they're part of the establishment. They're on the payroll. The think the 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 front groups, which are the think tanks, usually are funded by a whole variety of nefarious sources. That again, unless you're a podcaster and you have the ability to go and actually go, well, who the fuck is this? And you look it up and you spend an hour drilling down into it, which your average punter isn't going to do. You don't realize that these people are on the payroll. Yes, but the media, oh, we've got thirty seconds. We need to fill quick. Who do, who do we have? And, you know, obviously these organisations are always putting their people forwards as available experts to be talking heads when you need one on TV and they're going to trot out the establishment's uh, narrative on cue and no one's going to question it because we don't even have any journalists anymore in this country. I see uh, Rupert's laying off more people this week. It's, you know, it's been trimmed to the bone. Journalists have written their own epitaph over the last 30 years as they've let this happen. They've become 
basically PR hacks for big corporations and not question it while, you know, while they were playing playing violin on the Titanic while it was going down and all of a sudden they're uh, below the waterline, they're going, oh, this isn't right, what's going on? What's happening to my job? All of a sudden they give a shit when it's their jobs that are affected. But, you know, for the last 20 years, while they've let the mainstream media just obliterate any sense of genuine independent journalism and keeping the bastards honest, they just looked the other way, took the paycheck and shut up because of the psychopathic cultures inside of our media organisations. You see, I did, see what I did there? That was a Larry David. I brought it full yep. loop back yep. to psychopathic yep. cultures. And, and the way your sort of tone of your voice dropped off right at the end, indicating the end of your spiel and for me to come in. It was what was... You're a real pro, Masterful, Cam. Masterful, right? <laughs> so, Cam, uh, part of all this then is where do we get our information from that we can perhaps trust more than other information? And I see in your book that you gave a little link to your own website, CameronRiley.com slash news-sources forward slash. And yeah, you've got a list I, there of some independent investigative journalists who you kind of trust to some extent. So the sorts of groups you've got there, investigative journalism, you've got International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Seymour Hirsch, Matt Taibbi, Strategic Culture Foundation, Dancers with Bears, Alan McLeod. So I recognise some of those names. US News, you've got Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Jimmy Dore. Australian, you've got Caitlin Johnston, Middle East, Robert Fisk, sadly deceased. A couple of Reddit areas. In podcasts, you've listed Background Briefing with Ian Masters, Useful Idiots with Matt Taibbi, Moderate Rebels. There's a glaring omission in the podcast list, Cam. Um, I think I've mentioned well, this before. I, I've checked the bank account, Trev. I didn't see the deposit. So there's a there's a limit to you know my uh, ethics in independent journalism. No, yeah. I will, I will, I will. I can see the reason you had me on now was just to to fix that up. It's all become clear. Yeah, look, I think, you know, I, I bang on a, a lot in the Bullshit Filter podcast about epistemology and heuristics. You know, we and I'm gearing up to do another show, big long show on current state of COVID conspiracy theories in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we can't all be experts on everything. Let alone, you know, I can't even be an expert on one thing, let alone everything. So... We, we need to have some kind of philosophy for where we're going to get our information from. And I think it starts with, you know, kind of layman's epistemology. Like, how do we know what's true for, for us individually? What, where do I get truth? How do I think truth is derived? Where does truth come from? How do I know what's true? And so for me, when it comes to looking at contemporary news issues, you know, I'm trying to go back to the people that are qualified experts in their domain. If so if it's we're talking about COVID, it's epidemiologists or, or, or people that uh, represent the mainstream consensus view for, you know, an active discipline. They actually know what they're talking about. Then there can be a lot of people in that sense, a lot of people with the training and the, the the qualifications. So then it comes down to my heuristics, like in terms of my rule of thumb, who do I turn to for this particular subject matter? And why do I turn to that person or that group? So it, for me, it would have to be that they have a track record in, in you know being honest having a high level of integrity you know Cohen their views coinciding with what seems to be the mainstream scientific view or the view of the best thinkers in this space 
as opposed to because you know, there's a fringe view on everything so everyone can find an expert these days you have to try and figure out who do i trust and why do i trust that person so if you come to me if i if i give you a point of view on a subject and you say well, where did you get it from i'll tell you what my source is and then if you give me an opposing view i'll say well you know and i often do this when i get people on to debate me on our podcast and they go well what's your source and if you can't give me a quickly a credible source for where you're getting your data or your analysis of data from then the, the conversation's over. It's meaningless. If you don't have a credible source, and if you can't tell me why you trust that source and why you think that source is credible, I'm not going to waste my time talking to you because you're a flake, right? Yeah, I don't give a shit what your opinion is. If you can't back it up with data or analysis of data from a credible source and tell me why that source is credible, I'm not interested. Right, you're just another dickhead with an opinion. So it's important that we think about these sorts of things and we compile a list of sources. And you know, I encourage people to check out my list, share your lists with me, and tell me why you like your sources. And let's come up with a list of sources that we think are worth paying attention to. Did you find if you this one you're doing on COVID? Did you find with COVID it was a little bit strange or disappointing or? inexplicable to some of the people who on their face had good qualifications as epidemiologists who were coming out with some quite crazy theories that seemed to be quite contrary to the general community of fellow experts. Like I just sort of noticed myself in investigating these that you would see this name say something. Maybe it was that uh, the Great Barrington Declaration or whatever, and I think one or two of the, the authors of that, on the face of it, seemed to have, you know, a, a career as an epidemiologist. Mm. And then they've come out with these statements and you think, well, that's, that's odd. Uh, I can, you know, I get it when a YouTuber with no experience in epidemiology who's a self-described problem solver has a million views and says something and you say, well, okay, you don't have any expertise. But I just found with COVID, did you find that at all in your research that you had some genuine experts and you scratched your head as to, as to why they had flipped compared to the rest of their peers? Well, so then you need to ask the question, why? What's going on there? Mm. You need to have some sort of an answer to that question. If you have people that are on paper, qualified experts in their profession. And, you know, with that document, the last time I looked at it, which was a while back, but, you know, a good percentage of the people who signed the document had, you know, were not practicing active epidemiologists. They were geologists yes. expressing an opinion on COVID mm. and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the people that are eminently qualified, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why do they mm. have an opposing view? And like people, you know, and I'm the first person to say that, you know, science progresses through once fringe voices that then work their way into the mainstream. So there's nothing inherently wrong with fringe contrarian voices. That's how science mm. works. We all understand, hopefully, those of us that pay attention understand that that's how science works. But the way that science works is that those fringe contrarian voices need to make their case successfully to the consensus mainstream of scientists before the rest of us should accept it as being the best current version of the truth. The fact that a fringe person says it is true doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. So how do you tell what is most likely to be true. 
it's when you have the consensus. So, yes, you'll get these documents where there will be a handful, you know, from the total global number of actively practicing epidemiologists, the ones that are signing documents like that is the vast minority of them. So, yeah, mm. there's still a fringe voice. And science at the end of the day, whether whack job conspiracy theorists or not like this, is built around consensus, like my film. I keep telling people, I don't care if you don't like what I said about how the Bible was written in my film, and I don't care if you've got some guy with a PhD in New Testament studies who disagrees with it. The view that we expressed in the film was the mainstream view of New Testament, PhD-level New Testament scholars. Mm. That's not necessarily meaning that they're right, it's the mainstream view of the consensus. I don't give a fuck if you've got a fringe voice who says they're wrong. Congratulations. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what a fringe mm. guy says. It's the same with COVID science. Right? Mm. What, what's or your any catch? Science. You've got a catchphrase. Is it, is it QE, QE Bono? QE Bono? What's, what's the phrase you use? What's the Latin? Come on, help me out. As the advocatus diaboling, I need help with my of, of the news attempt. No, QE Bono. Yeah. Qui bono. It's from, uh, well, Cicero used it, but Cicero got it from somewhere else. But yeah. it means who who benefits? When he was yeah. when he was working as a lawyer, he would often ask the question, who benefits from this situation? Follow the money. You know? Yes. Yeah. So I know when I'm looking at articles about these things, the first thing I do, you know, if we were going to do something on COVID or, or whatever topic we're looking at is before even reading the article, I would say, well, where is it coming from? What What's the publisher? And then secondly, who is this journalist who's writing this? Who's this person? What, what's their story? And then I would begin actually reading the article if the headline has, mm. has got me in with some clickbait or something. But and trying to work out. Yes. And just a humble the, podcaster. <laughs> you're taking, yeah, you, 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 you can take the time to think about these things. Yes. But uh, Joe Blow, no. You exactly. Know, he's going to read the headline, if that, and move on, you know. Yes. Yeah. Listen to Alan Jones and move on. Yeah. Now, just uh, finishing up with your book, Cam, because I know you're a busy man and you've got things to get to. So I want to just, so with the psychopaths and the problems they're causing and their infiltration into our powerful organisations, and it's very difficult for us to do anything about it because we're subjected to propaganda. So it's hard for the average Joe to even know what's going on. It's, and as I was reading the book, I, you know, you're painting a grim picture and I kept thinking to myself, gee, I can't wait for the ending where there's a neat little package of, of a solution here to, uh, <laughs> that, that wraps it all up and goes, ta-da, here's all we have to do to fix things. And unfortunately, there really wasn't one, Cam. And yes, there was. Seemed, I took no, a lot of time to write that last <laughs> chapter, Trevor. No, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I got from it, which was, what can we do, question mark, it would be, Basically, get our shit together so we've got time to be informed by reliable sources so that we can work out whether we're being lied to or bullshitted to. It was kind of that's part of it. Did you read the whole chapter? I think you just uh, did. You get some? Did you get (laughs) the velvet glove to read this for you from Cairns or wherever the fuck he is? The twelfth man. Did the twelfth man do this one? I read the whole Uh, thing. It's it's look. It's got highlights all through it. No, look, the, 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 the last chapter, what do we do about it? You know, the simple version is uh, line up all the psychopaths and shoot them. But, you know, the, sec- the, the, the easier version is 
Yeah, look, there's there's a couple of things. Number one, I think we all need to do our own analysis on our own ethics, morals, and values. We need to understand what we're willing to participate in and what we're not willing to participate in, because if you aren't clear on that, it's very easy to go along with the flow and be part of the problem, not part of the solution. We also do need to uh, think carefully about uh, the sort of stuff that we put in our brain and the news sources that we pay attention to and why we pay attention to them. And, you know, as I posted on Facebook today, I think, you know, the podcast that, that you listen to is very important. And, you know, what the world really is lacking, I think, at the moment are more podcasts by celebrities where they interview other celebrities about how great it is being a celebrity. I think that I don't think there's enough of those out there right now. I think like, COVID. Like this one. <laughs> are, we, are we celebrities? Dire Straits, no, I have not done an audio version of the book because I'm not allowed to. Because I signed a deal with my publisher where they have the rights to produce the audio book and not me. And they sold that on to someone else who hasn't done it because of COVID and whatever. So there you go. I can't even do it if I wanted to. I'm legally not allowed to do an audio book of my own book, even though I'm a podcaster and I talk for a living. You should have seen um, a lawyer about that. Yeah, I should have. Yeah, well, no, I signed it. I signed the contract, you know. What are, what are you going to do? But the, the the main all of this that I took a lot of time to think about, uh, for apparently pointlessly, when writing the book, Trevor, is that inside of our organisations, we need to figure out who the psychopaths are and we need to ring fence the psychopaths. Now, being psychopaths isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. You know, I think psychopaths have qualities. You know, you could argue that Steve Jobs was a psychopath and I know not everybody is a fan of Steve Jobs, but the flip side is I am. <laughs> I love my iPad. I love my iPhone. I love my AirPods. I love my MacBook. And I have Steve Jobs to thank for all of those things. Now, Steve also did some really shitty stuff in his lifetime. If you've read Walter Isaacson's biography on him or seen many of the films that have come out or whatever. You've also got the US military to thank as well. Like, you know, there was that book about so many of the inventions found in the iPhone are actually out of public institutions. That, what do you mean there uh, was that book? That was my fucking book. I talk about that in my book, that all of these inventions get funded by uh, public money and then end up in private, <laughs> patents end up in private hands and private wealth. Anyway, fuck me. You didn't really read the book, did you? I was thinking of that Mariana Maruzzo lady. She wrote a book about the whole thing was about that. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like Mariana Trench lady, never heard of her. So yeah. anyway, yeah, Chomsky's been talking about that for, for decades. So we need to understand who the so, – so I want everybody – easy for me to say because I don't have a job, but everyone that has a job, whether you're in a business or politics or religion <laughs> or whatever – Create a movement inside of the organization. Don't do it by yourself because you'll get knifed. Create a movement. <laughs> get 20 people, 30 people, 50 people. Give them my book. Buy 50 copies of my book with corporate funds and hand it out. Create a, create a psychopath committee. You don't have to call it that, but create a committee in your organization to try and get, all, particularly management, to sit psychopath tests. Everyone of a certain level inside of an organization should have to sit a psychopath test so we know who the psychopaths are. Now, do everyone they, do they says, work? I'm a bit yes, skeptical no, about psychopath yes, tests. I was going to get there. Everyone will say, well, psychopaths will just lie. No, they won't lie on a psychopath test, usually, unless they really think something is hinging on this because 
They don't give a, they don't give a fuck what you think about who they are. They're proud of who they are. They're a winner and you're a loser and they don't give a shit what your little form says they are because they're a winner and they're in control and they're in power and they're going to win. Regardless of what your little form says, they're going to win. That's what they think and they don't care. Secondly, they're proud of it. Thirdly, you know, well, that's it. It's really only the two things. <laughs> they, they're proud of who they are. There are, you know, if they think they might lose their job, which they probably don't, if they're a senior manager in an organisation, we need to we need to figure out who they are. And ideally, this should be done, you know, during the hiring process. But obviously, it's too late in all these mm. instances now. We need to figure out, and then we need to ring fence them. Now, by ring fence them, I just mean it could be as simple as having, if you have a senior manager who ranks highly on the psychopath test, you have a committee of people who are not psychopaths, we know this because they did the psychopath test, who get to evaluate the decisions that the manager is making against a, an ethical framework. That's all. So they can continue to make decisions and continue to have power. We're just trying to avoid them making decisions that are psychopathic. Let them make all the good decisions in the world. Just stop them from making so an extra layer of management over their decision-making to filter out the really bad stuff they might do. Yeah, right. like a, a regulatory committee, a governance committee that just makes sure that they're not doing heinous it, shit. Okay, because it's too hard to get rid of these people? Because I would have thought the answer was let's all get together and, and try and get rid of this person. Not so much? Yeah, that's No, that's because you're, you know... Church of Satan guy, you think <laughs> satanic? Yeah, no, as I said, I don't necessarily think that would be a good thing. I think psychopaths particularly have qualities, well, have particular qualities, I mean, that, that could be mm. beneficial. You know, if I go back and I look at Julius Caesar or Alexander or Napoleon or Stalin or, mm. or, 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 you know, you name it, Jobs, Gates, I can. I saw somebody earlier in the comment section. Barma. Yeah, I worked for Barma. Yeah, Barma, definitely. You know, these guys have strengths that we want to. You know, it's it's Atlas Shrugged. It's Iron Rand. Atlas Shrugged. Right. These guys have strengths that society might need to drag us forwards to make progress. Maybe mm -hmm. it was only Steve Jobs that could come out with the iPhone and the you know the 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 iPod. Look at this. How beautiful is that, man? Like mm. uh, 2004 model iPod, whatever. It doesn't work, sadly, but it kind of does if I charge it. Maybe you just can't. Who you can't get a charger like that anymore, you know? Anyway, but we just want to we want to enable them to make the good decisions, but stop them from making the bad bad decisions. And to reply mm. to Dyer Straits, who said, "I talk about Chomsky like he's the Messiah." No, he's just the world's leading intellectual and has been, you know, since I interviewed him in 2005 on G'day World. He, I think the day or earlier he'd been uh, called by the economist the world's leading intellectual and then mm. i had to interview him the next day so that wasn't stressful but you know i think chomsky is a very very intelligent guy who spent his entire life thinking about two things the way americans america's political system works predominantly and you know where you know our foundations of speech come from you know. can, can you think of a good example of a psychopath being dealt with well in an organisation, sort of either curtailed and reined in, or can you? is there any public well-known example of that at all? Yeah, well, I'll go back to Steve Jobs. So, okay. you know, you go back to the uh, late 80s when Steve was kicked out of Apple by the board 
because he was, they thought, a danger to the business that he co-founded, they removed him from the organisation. And then the organisation struggled for, you know, the next, whatever, 13 years, 11 years, I think. Then he came back and he was a very different guy when he came back. He uh, a lot more time and a lot, a lot of self-reflection, I think. Possibly still a psychopath to work for, difficult guy to work for, but he seems to have got it right. You know, I, I watched a clip of it, of him today, actually, on YouTube or something from one of his early Mac worlds or keynotes, you know, after he came back and somebody got up in the audience and was criticizing some decisions that he made <coughs> about a lot of the products he was getting rid of. And he said, look, you know, one of the things that I think makes great businesses great is that they are focused on customers first. They think about how can we make customers' lives better and then they go do that as opposed to sitting around with a bunch of engineers saying what kind of technology can we build, then building it and then trying to figure out how to sell it to people, which is what Apple has been doing for the last 10 years. And what we're going to do from now on is we're going to put the customer first for at the centre of everything that we do. Now, go into an Apple store today and tell them that your AirPods have stopped charging properly or that your iPhone battery's got a problem and see how long it takes them to replace it and give you a brand new pair and tell me that that message didn't make its way into the, the DNA of the organization, right? He's been dead for 10 years and that is still very obviously at the center of their business culture. I mean... I can't tell you how many times I've still got an iPhone 7 because every time I try and take it back to Apple to get a new one, they just give me a new one and go, oh, here you go. Let's get right. take this one. I'm like, oh, shit. I was hoping you would give me an excuse to upgrade. And they go, no, just take this one. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So, um, yeah, look, I think that was an example. You know, Watley the Wizard says Julius Caesar. I think Julius Caesar wasn't a psychopath. It was Brutus and Cassius who assassinated him with the the psychopaths in that particular instance. But don't get me started on that. I can't think of many other examples. I mean, there's plenty of examples of the ones like somebody mentioned before Elizabeth Thanos or whatever her name was from the uh, blood startup that got shot down in flames. There's lots of examples of psychopaths burning out and failing. Mm. <clears throat> but in terms of curbing their worst behaviours and enabling to do good, I'm not exactly... I'm not exactly sure I have any great. I didn't come up with any for the book. No. Right. Do you have any? And if you and if you can't get rid of a psychopath, you're in a, your boss is a psychopath and you're stuck there. Just move on. If you can't get rid of him, or if there were not going to be any overseeing of of the decisions, then get away from them. Would that be find another job if you can? Just stop beating your head against a a brick wall, or they're just too dangerous to hang around. Well, you know, that's what happened to me at Microsoft. Mm. I resigned because my boss was a psychopath and I tried mm. all of the legitimate internal mechanisms for dealing with that and just got nowhere. So I ended up getting a big, bad industrial relations lawyer to come and relieve me of the of my obligations to the organization. But, you know, when you do that, you're just leaving the problem there. Like, if you can do something about it. I strongly mm. urge people to, as again, I said before, it's easy for me because 
I am my own boss and I'm the only psychopath that I have to worry about on a day-to-day basis was Ray. But uh, me and, you know, Ray. And, and Fox, like, surely? Oh, don't get me started. That's a, that's a future problem. And, you know, my elder boys, I'm sure one of them's a narcissist. I'm not sure he's a psychopath, but definitely a narcissist. Um, All right, Cam. Okay, so we'll wind it up, Cam. Can I get a so, plug for the film in while I'm yeah, in? Well, that's what I was going to say. Let's let's devote the next five or ten minutes to plugs because half the audience uh, in the chat room were ex-bullshit filter sort of people who have come across and have now joined me. So this oh, is my attempt yeah, right. to sort of send them back in your direction as well. So, oh, right. so, yeah. so for the people who don't know you, Cam, you've – well, let's start with podcasts. You've got a number of history – podcasts and you've got the bullshit filter and so if they go to the podcast network.com then they will see a list there and go to cameronreilly.com but yeah podcast network for all the podcasts and we do a show a regular show on ancient rome we started with julius caesar we're up to nero at the moment they're very it's deep dive stuff we did we we were doing it we did a series on alexander the great which went for 150 episodes or something we're doing a very long series on the cold war we're currently in the middle of the korean war on that very deep deep dive sort of a series we do a series on the renaissance we're currently episode 16 on leonardo da vinci but that's hundreds of episodes we're into the renaissance the bullshit filter where i just talk about whatever's on my mind at any given month well Actually, Sean Hadrill says, Psychopath Committee sounds like McCarthyism or Witch Hunting 2.2. Well, actually, it is. But, yeah, we we need to – this is the – if I'm right, this is the great threat to civilization psychopaths. So we – again, but I'm not saying that we're blackballing them like McCarthy tried to do. We're not trying to get them fired. As I keep saying, uh, they have good positive qualities. We want to retain the positive qualities, just limit the the their ability to do harm, really. And so then, yeah, they're the podcast most. I also do QAV, right? My investing podcast with Tony Kynaston, which we do every every week, where we teach people how to invest, like Warren Buffett, basically. Yeah, and then I've got the film that that came out and died quickly, just prior to COVID. We had a sold out screening in Melbourne. A sold-out screening in Sydney, but only half the people turned up because Sydney was half in lockdown on the night it happened. And then the Brisbane screening, which I know you were coming to, didn't happen because the cinemas shut down the day that the screening was to be held at the barracks in March of last year. So it, you can it's marketing the Messiah. You can see it. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Amazon Prime. You can find it on the website, marketingthemessiah.com. But I went out and I interviewed... 12 experts on early Christianity. Most of them have a PhD in New Testament studies or biblical studies or ancient history or something like that. And I I was really just trying to get them to help articulate the mainstream consensus view on how Christianity got started, right? Who was there? Who did it? What was the progression of events that went from Jesus through to the New Testament being written, basically, sort of capped it with the writing of the Gospels. Didn't go right through to, you know, the, the you know Constantine and and uh, Theodosius and all of those sorts of things, which I have done in detail in my Renaissance series because you can't understand the Renaissance without understanding the Dark Ages, and you can't that's, understand that's right. the Dark this was Ages the re- without this understanding. Is the, this is the Renaissance series that started in about 100 AD. Is that right? Is it? Uh, 270 <laughs> CE, yeah, yeah, with the persecutions of Diocletian. You can't understand the Dark Ages without understanding the rise of Christianity. 
etc etc so yeah but the film is a is a comedic like a slightly humorous depending on who you ask if you go to the reviews on amazon prime half the audience give it five stars and think it's the other half are christians and give it one star and saying it's boring and terrible and factually incorrect and i'm a complete tool so uh, there's nothing like being divisive but it's it's it was i tried to do a fair balanced nice film marketing the messiah sean there's a poster behind me and if you can see that the screen's been like that's the uh, no yeah i'll put a link in the show notes there's the poster yeah marketing the the messiah yeah that's it yeah um i tried to do i tried to be fair and 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 nice i tried not to be too Mm. offensive or nasty or mean so half the scholars in the film are christians half of them are probably atheists i i think i mean i didn't really ask people but i think they were Half and half. I tried to make it half and half. And they're all, there's no theologians. There's no rabid atheists. It's all, well, 11 out of the 12 scholars are are PhD level scholars. And then there's David Fitzgerald, who's written a bunch of books on early Christianity. And I like Dave and I wanted him on to sort of, you know, be my mouthpiece really in the thing. Because originally when I shot it, I didn't think I would be on camera much. Thought it would just be the scholars. But then in the editing room, it was obvious that somebody needed to string it together and there's some you know amusing slightly offensive animations in there to helping tell the story south parky style stuff so yeah that's the film i'm, I'm quite i'm quite uh, proud of how it turned out we should do a brisbane screening at some point cam like why not no yeah well, too hard to do Right. I mean, it's too hard to fucking do anything in COVID, right? It's, right. Uh, it would just probably and bring with on. And my luck, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my luck, I'll organise it. It'll, we'll go into lockdown the day it happens again. So yeah, when COVID is, mm. I'll try it then. Mm. So all, all those that uh, Cam listed, one of my favourites was in uh, the Cold War podcast where you were speaking about Ho Chi Minh. Love that stuff. So that was good. Mm. So, Thanks. Um, yeah, we did a did a really big deep dive on the Vietnam War and Ho Chi Minh, and well, we haven't really gotten to the Vietnam War yet. We haven't really got up to the American involvement, but we did the early stages of him trying to get rid of the French and the Japanese, and then the French again. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the guy you described seemed in the end quite an honourable guy, and and sort of not really. The psychopath that people might have thought if you hear the name Ho Chi Minh, oh, he must have been a psychopath. And in fact, he was just a, a he was fucking Je- yeah. he yeah. was Jesus, man. He was really <laughs> Jesus. He was like this nice. I mean, I say no, I was going to say nice old guy, but he literally spent his entire life from the age of nineteen through to when he died in his uh, late sixties, early seventies, mm. as a. Uh, freedom fighter trying to free vietnam from colonial oppression that was dedicated he was poor for the vast majority of it living in Mm. little mud huts i just watched platoon Mm. oliver stone's platoon if you haven't seen that since Mm. listening to my series on ho chi minh it's Mm. worth going back and looking at it with those that viewpoint you know these vietnamese just trying to kick and yet another wave of colonial invaders out of their country, led by Ho and uh, his team. So, mm. thank so you. there's my uh, tip, dear listener: get onto the, the bullshit filter. If you're not sure amongst all those which which to support, go to the uh, Cold War podcast and head to the one about Ho Chi Minh. That was good. So it's probably Cam- free too. Really? 
Well, what, what we're doing now is our, all our archive episodes up until the current year. So all of the archive episodes of Renaissance, Bullshit and Cold War free. It's only the current year of episodes like 2021 episodes that are uh, under the paywall. With the Caesar show, it's the reverse. The old, the old episodes are under the paywall and the current stuff is free. I don't know why. I'm just testing different economic formats, models. Right. Right. Very good. And if you want to learn to invest, it's the QAV one. So, all right, Cam. Well, I really appreciate having you come on and make life easy for me for a week where I could just let you <laughs> give you good. a few words. When are you going off, off to return the favour? When are you going to come on my show and talk about Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci for a couple of hours? Oh, I could probably do the COVID one if you want help on that. I've, I've been battling COVID conspiracy theories for a while. I'm, I'm sort of up to speed on a fair bit of that. So, Ray's um, going away. Ray's going on yet another vacation. So, right. Yeah. Okay. Week after next is going to be my COVID deep dive week. And when does Ray go away? Week after next. Yeah. Oh, he's away okay. for a week or 10 days or something. So, that's what I'm doing while he's away. Okay. Well, sign me up. There we go. I'll, I'll okay. be up for that one. <laughs> good night. Very Thanks, good. Trev. Thank, thank you, dear listeners in the chat room. You've been magnificent. For some reason, it didn't play on your Facebook page cam we're going to investigate why just the technology didn't work but anyway we'll work i'm blaming joe <laughs> we'll work something out and uh, r.i.p and my condolences for peter too yeah I, mean, I only met him that once when we had lunch together and my kind of guy i i, I was uh, very fond of him yeah that was really fortuitous because i did listen to my friend peter had a love of of the Bible, in terms of its uh, as a historical document, he loved talking about the letters of St. Paul as to whether that proved the existence of the historical Jesus. And I was having either a coffee or a lunch with Peter every week. And in the back of my mind, I thought, gee, it'd be good to get Pete with Cam one day. And I was driving to pick up Pete. And at that moment, you rang and said, What are we doing? You know, you want to have a cup of coffee? And I said, Great. I'll put the three of them together. And I we went to a coffee shop and the two of you just went hammer and tongs over chapter and verse literally of the Bible mm. and of Paul and and it was really good. Pete enjoyed it. it. You did. It I was a really it. Yeah. good conversation and, and one of the highlights for me. So, yeah, it was good. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was lovely. All right, enough reminiscing, dear listener. Talk to you next week with the panel. Uh, we'll be back then. Thanks, Cam. Talk to you later. Bye. Cheers. I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement. The sex instinct will be eradicated. We shall abolish the orgasm. There will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you.